former Supreme Court Justice Bob Orr, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. Always glad to be in Western North Carolina. Yeah, and you spent time here, of course. You're from Hendersonville, right? Grew up in Hendersonville, practiced law here in Asheville for 11 years. And even though I've been in Raleigh for the last 30, I've got a place over in Yancey County that is my official voting residence. And give me the, a brief history about your time on the North Carolina Supreme Court. Well, you know, the Supreme Court was preceded by eight years on the Court of Appeals, and and I think I, I need to at least lay some groundwork. Governor Jim Martin appointed me to the Court of Appeals in September of 1986. I had to run a statewide election on a partisan ballot in the course of the next two months, which was impossible, plus trying to you know, get acclimated as a judge. So uh, as I say, Governor Martin jokingly said, just remember, no Republicans won a statewide judgeship since 1896. Don't sell your house in Asheville because you probably won't be here long. Uh, (laughs) And we all lost, all of the appointees um, uh, lost. And But fortunately for me, there was another vacancy on the Court of Appeals that occurred because of the election. So Governor Martin reappointed me, and that's when I sort of set out on a two-year odyssey to see if an obscure Republican Court of Appeals candidate could get elected. And, you know, thanks to help from a lot of folks, I I was able to to win in 88, get reelected in 92, and then ran for the Supreme Court in 94 and was elected to the Supreme Court. I see. Okay. So you've stayed busy uh, after your... After, yeah. after the time when you retired from the Supreme Court. So tell me a little bit about what you've been doing lately. Well, after I retired from the court, I spent seven years running what was then a new organization called the North Carolina Institute for Constitutional Law. It was focused primarily on state constitutional issues. And I tell folks, when I graduated from law school at UNC in 1975, I'm not even sure I knew there was a North Carolina Constitution. And yet, uh, over the course of my career, a greater focus and interest in state constitutional issues emerged, and I was able, after my time on the court, to really sort of dig into that, litigate some cases involving state constitutional issues. And since leaving the Institute, I guess about four or five years ago, I have been back in private practice on sort of a three-quarter time basis doing primarily state constitutional issues. So a lot of changes have been proposed to North Carolina's judiciary uh, in the recent days from the legislature, and it's hard to kind of keep track of all the changes that are being proposed. First of all, there's been changes to make certain elections partisan again. So we've had some of those pass through, and uh, we have partisan elections again for a number of judgeships, um, and we also have uh, proposed district lines. We have uh, proposed changes to the way we elect judges as far as going to our more merit selection type of thing. So help me <laughs> help me break down uh, what's been proposed, and you have your own opinions right. about this, of yeah. course. Yeah. Historically, the legislature has diddled 
with the judiciary, whether it's dealing with district lines or partisan versus nonpartisan labels. I mean, I mean that's that, so it's not just the Republicans who are now in control that have done this. Uh, it, it seems like, though, in part because there's been so much litigation arising out of laws passed by the Republican-controlled General Assembly that you've you've seen more people going to court, more people willing to challenge, more groups willing to challenge the acts of the legislature. And so it's as if the legislature is unhappy with the judiciary, which I think would probably be a fair statement. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, well, we've seen historically that the legislature can you know, put its finger on the scales and sort of shift things around. Let's start doing that. And so we've seen, particularly after Governor Cooper was elected, uh, which meant that any vacancy at the appellate level would be filled by the governor, we've seen the legislature either enacting or proposing a variety of changes that I think the only fair assessment would be to make the court system and the judges more inclined to the legislature's positions than contrary to them. Yeah. Now, one of those was a law that the General Assembly passed in a special session that basically removed Governor Cooper's ability to appoint three appellate judges. So they shrank it down so he would have been able to get three approved. Right. There, There was anticipated that there would be three Republicans retiring from the Court of Appeals. The Constitution provides that when a vacancy occurs, the governor appoints to fill the vacancy. And so this legislation uh, reduced the number of, of judges on the Court of Appeals from 15 to 12 in an effort to eliminate Governor Cooper's ability to make those appointments. I think no one asked for it. I mean, no one in the administrative office of the courts, the chief justice, who is a Republican and runs the court system for the state, didn't ask for it. The Court of Appeals judges, most of whom are Republicans, didn't ask for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that I think that's what concerns so many people, is that it's this overt legislative action without really taking into account all of the stakeholders and people impacted by it. What did you think when there were all of these proposed district lines? Because as the Republicans say, uh, Representative Justin Burr, who introduced it, he says, you know, this sort of change hasn't taken place in some 50 years. So it's Democrats that have been benefiting from the system that they put into place. And what we're trying to do now, we as Republicans, in in his words, are trying to correct that. Uh, What do you think about all this? Well, I certainly think that a comprehensive analysis and reevaluation of of judicial districts and prosecutorial districts uh, is warranted. I think historically, Powerful legislators at that time, mainly Democrats, whose somebody's law partner needed a nice judgeship or a DA's, you know, they'd start messing with districts and shift them around. Then in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, you had litigation involving African-American opportunities for judgeships. So I think districts were drawn to give, you know, sort of address that civil rights and voting rights issue. But we don't have a one-person, one-vote command. You know, so it's, I mean, judges don't represent voters. You know, they have an oath to follow the law and the Constitution, uh, regardless what the voters may think about it. And so the district proposal just sort of fell out of the air. And while 
The proponents have gone out and talked to judges and stakeholders. That's on the back end of the process. I think you should have the administrative office of the courts. You should have the North Carolina Bar Association, the Conference of District Court Judges, Superior Court Judges. What is a good district? I mean, you take Buncombe County, I can't remember how many district court judges we have here. you got two resident Superior Court Judges. What makes sense in drawing these districts? It's not necessarily, you know, an equal number, although that's a good goal to try and accomplish. But what you don't want to do is start drawing the districts for partisan advantage. And unfortunately, if the legislature's involved, no matter who's in control, that's probably what you're going to end up with. That's probably what you're going to end up with. I'm not quite sure what the legislature is heading towards because they seem to be making kind of multiple moves at one time. So they've eliminated uh, judicial primaries for 2018 currently, I guess, to give themselves more time to look at districts. But they're also talking about perhaps eliminating elections for judges altogether and going to merit-based. What do you think about that? (laughs) Well, uh, merit selection or eliminating partisan or even nonpartisan head-to-head races has been a topic for 50 years. It's important to know that the 1868 Constitution, the Reconstruction Constitution, put in place a system whereby the voters elect judges. You know, I've always said, and I ran five statewide elections, you know, I'm comfortable with an election if you have an informed electorate. But particularly on a statewide basis, you start thinking about, you know, how in the world is the average voter going to evaluate whether I'm doing a good job as a Supreme Court justice? Uh, You know, do you pick one opinion out of, 50. You know, do you look at the body of work that I did for eight years on the Court of Appeals? And you can, as a candidate, raise enough money to adequately inform. And even if you do, it's sort of 30-second generalizations. I'm a fair person. You know, I work hard. I mean, that kind of stuff. So, So it really is a challenge trying to figure out a good system. But I think the critical components no matter what the system, is you want well-qualified people. There was a federal nominee for a federal district court judgeship that I saw recently that had never tried a case in his life. I mean, you know, I feel like if you're going to be a trial judge, you need to have tried a few cases. You want somebody's life and property in your hands in front of a jury. That's troubling. And then you want people of impeccable integrity and independence because sometimes you need to rule against your friends and the people who supported you whether it's a partisan election whether it's an appointment process you've got to have the backbone to say the law and the constitution and the facts of this case dictate this decision and i know all my friends are going to be really upset with me for voting this way yeah but you got to do it yeah and and so however the system ends up working and whatever the process going forward, that's what voters need to be thinking about. Not, is this a liberal candidate, you know, they're going to rule in liberal ways that I like, or it's a conservative candidate. I mean, we we have got to back off this sticking labels on judges because the independence of the judiciary is really the glue that holds democracy together. Yeah, now the legislature has voted to make Supreme Court justice races partisan again, right. I believe. And the last election, 
a Democrat, a registered Democrat, Mike Morgan, defeated an incumbent Republican, Bob Edmonds. And that was not a partisan race at the time. Do you think that the electorate was informed enough to make that decision? Do you think that had party label been on there, that election might have gone differently? The public assumed that the name at the top of the ballot was the Republican. And so what happened, and I'll take Little Yancey County, where I vote, Mike Morgan, an African-American Democrat from Wake County, was the only Democrat, even though there wasn't a partisan label on the ticket, he was the only Democrat among all the judges running to carry Yancey County. And so all the other Republican judges at the Court of Appeals level, where it was identified by partisanship, led the ticket comfortably. I mean, Trump carried Yancey County by a big margin. And yet Mike Morgan wins. And they're both, I have great respect for Mike Morgan and Bob Edmonds, who he defeated. Both are good friends. So uh, it, it, you know, it's not, nothing personal. But I think the voters, under the best of circumstances, don't have enough information, particularly in a statewide race. And I, I dare say, even down to the district court level in urban areas, you know, you, maybe you go to court for a speeding ticket once. I mean, I get lawyers calling me. Bob, who do you think I ought to vote for? I don't know either of these people. Yeah, so right. if the lawyers aren't well informed, <laughs> you know, John Q. Public, who isn't in the in the system, yeah. you know, don't know it. So there's no solution or, or good solution right. to it. But partisan label, I mean, I'm comfortable with it on the statewide races. It at least gives you as a candidate kind of a structure to, to work in. But mm-hmm. I, this is NPR, so I can, I can say this. You know, the key to my 1988 first win for the Court of Appeals as a Republican, you know, like I indicated, I was the first Republican elected since 1896 to a statewide appellate judgeship, was I never told anybody I was conservative. Because by having an R by my name, everybody automatically assumed I was the most conservative. And yet I was able to get a variety of, you know, sort of progressive-leaning groups. Uh, The NCAE had a number of black political organizations, trial lawyers, all endorsed me, hopefully on the merits of my record as a judge. But, you know, sticking labels just Mm -hmm. doesn't work, in my opinion. Right, but you're conservative and you're Republican, and yet you're uh, not a fan of what the current legislature is doing with regards to changing judicial elections in a way that would benefit your party as a Republican. Yeah, because I, I mean, having spent 18 years as a judge, I, I have great appreciation for the hard decisions, whether it's at the trial level where you're dealing with a equitable distribution of, of a prominent couple's properties or the son of an elected official who's, you know, in trouble. I mean, there, there are always these pressures. And you got to be able to step away from those pressures and say, "All right, I got to I got to make this decision in a silo, literally, and whatever the consequences are, I've got to do it." You know, at the last time that we spoke, actually on the phone, it was because they had wanted you to go home from the convention. <laughs> well, I did go <laughs> I home to kind from of the re- convention. I had to kind yeah, of yeah. refresh my memory on what what was going on with well, that. Well, I was a delegate. I was Kasich's. co-chair here in North Carolina. I wanted to go vote for Kasich. And I'd said prior to the 
crime area in North Carolina that I would not support Trump under any circumstances. And so when I got to the convention, you media types, first thing you do is ask me, well, you still agree with that? And uh, and I said, yeah, I, I told you then, I'm telling you now. We stirred up the, the yeah, problem. Yeah, it's all, it's actually, it's, uh, uh, it's Colin Browder with WRAL asked me the question. But, uh, you know, and so that got back to the party chairman and executive director, and they said, we're going to hold your credentials, you know, if you're going to be out here saying you're not going to support the nominee. And I said, fine, hold them for as long as you want. I'm going back to North Carolina. Since I'm one of those media types that likes to stir things up, how do you how do you feel about Trump these days? Uh, any change in your opinion? Yeah, it's gotten worse. I mean, it's in my opinion, I mean, I, it's just mind boggling. The state of, you know, what's going on in the country, in the world, in large part because of the way he's conducted his presidency. I mean, I certainly was willing, you know, when he was elected, to say, okay, I hope he's successful because that means it's good for the country. Right. You know, now, I mean, I don't think he's done anything from a successful standpoint. He's always, you know, trying to divide people and belittle people. And Senator Jeff Flake, when he announced that he was not going to run for re-election, a very, very conservative Republican from Arizona, you know, he was asked, you know, is the president a role model? And he and Bob Corker both said, absolutely not. And I think about my children and grandchildren. Are there any characteristics or qualities of Donald Trump that I would want my children or grandchildren to emulate? And the truth is, I can't think of a single one, which is a a pretty sad commentary on the state of things. What's a Republican to do? You know, what you know, he, he's your best chance, if you're a Republican, of getting some of the bills that you want passed, passed. Right. So where does a Republican go from here? I think that is one of the biggest questions out there. For people like me, we're sitting around waiting to see what Kasich and Flake and Corker and a few others are willing to do in regard to 2020. You know, will there be a significant primary challenge if Trump runs for reelection? Will there be an independent third party effort, which is a a big leap. But I think it just gets tougher and tougher. Uh, And since I'm in Western North Carolina, I have to say, you know, my great grandfather, who was a farmer in Henderson County, refused to fight for the Confederacy, went over the mountains and fought for the Union. Uh, He went over to East Tennessee and joined the Union Army and came back a Lincoln Republican. So I like to think that my Republican roots run deep, but these are very difficult times for those of us who I describe as mountain Republicans. Well, I think your wife's calling, so I'm not going to take your time too much. But, <laughs> but let's talk yeah. about something yeah. fun sure. real quick before you go, the craft beer. Uh, yeah. I guess it you know, it could be fun, could be not fun. It's a legal <laughs> issue now. Yeah. But you're representing craft brewers in their fight against uh, the distribution lobby. Correct. Um, and uh, where does that stand? Where does that case stand? Well, we're pretty early in the process. The complaint has been filed that two craft breweries, Old Mac and Nutt out of Charlotte, 
and others attempted to get changes in this cap, yeah, production cap, right. that they were facing with. And just real quickly, if they produce more than 25,000 barrels of beer, they lose all the distribution rights to their own product. They have to turn it over to a wholesaler. And they couldn't get a legislative fix, despite folks like Chuck McGrady trying really hard to make that happen. So we filed a lawsuit. We're in the early stages of the motion that the state is making, uh, and we're doing a little bit of discovery at this point, but it's fairly early in the in the litigation process. It's a fascinating state constitutional case. I, I mean, like I say, all things come back to the state constitution. As a practical matter, I mean, when you sort of think both from a Republican-Democrat perspective, you have these creative, innovative, small businesses, and they grow, which is what we want businesses to do. And then at a certain point under the laws that have been in existence literally since the end of Prohibition, they get to 25,000 barrels, and all of a sudden you lose all the rights to how your product is distributed. You have to turn it over to the wholesalers. And so I think legally and constitutionally we're on strong ground, but I think in the court of public opinion, I think the public understands, you know, it's like, what? They, you know, I mean, you know, they can take away your distribution rights of your product simply because you've grown to a certain point. So every court case is a challenge, but we think this is uh, one that has a lot of merit to it. All right. Well, former Justice Bob Orr, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure.